coming up. And they wanted to be clear to the city very quickly that they believed she was targeted, that somebody knew where she was going to be that day and was waiting for her. For Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. You're listening to The Daily Crime. It's sunny out, the middle of the day as 53-year-old Elisa Sherman parks her car in downtown Cleveland, eight years ago on March 24th, 2013. She has a meeting set with her divorce attorney at his downtown office. Elisa Sherman, a mother and nurse for the Cleveland Clinic, was supposed to meet her attorney, Gregory Moore, but never made it. On weekdays, this part of downtown Cleveland is full of people going about their workday. But it's the weekend, a Sunday. So the streets are quiet as Elisa gets out of her car, likely not noticing that someone is waiting nearby, waiting for her. Who is this person? The hooded figure seen outside 75 Erie View around 5 p.m. on Sunday, March 24th, 2013. Sarah Shookman, you've covered today's case over the years as an anchor with three news in Cleveland, Ohio. Sarah, let's start by going all the way back to March of 2013. Who was Elisa Sherman and what did her life look like around this time? Elisa Sherman was a beloved mother and Cleveland Clinic nurse here in Cleveland. She was an active part of the Jewish community here. And she was going through quite a tumultuous time in her life in March of 2013. She was nearing a divorce trial with her husband of 30-plus years, Sanford Sherman. It had been a long battle, um, complicated by the four children that the couple shared, by financial issues, by all sorts of things. And on this day, from what we know, she was really in the mindset of preparing for this trial. It was about to start in 48 hours or so. One of the challenges of this case, and something that's going to become apparent as we get into it a little bit more, is that a lot of the details are hazy, or uh, even some of the most basic details are disputed. So with that stated, what do we know about Elisa Sherman's day on March 24th, 2013? Yeah, it is complicated. Uh, Many of the accounts come from family members who themselves have been questioned in this case. Um, What the police have released about their investigation is limited, and I know we're going to get into that as well. So on that day, on March 24th, what we understand was Elisa was contacted by her attorney, Gregory Moore, and asked to come down to his office in downtown Cleveland to meet with him to go over some final things before the trial would begin on Tuesday, about 48 hours later. It was a Sunday. It was a relatively quiet time in downtown Cleveland. She agreed to come meet with him late that afternoon, and she sent a text message to her daughter, Jennifer, telling her that she was going to have this meeting. As far as we know, she may not have even told anyone else that's where she was going. The other kids at home thought something different. She had been pretty quiet, uh, whether that was just her nature or whether that was because of the complicating factors around the divorce, just about the entire situation. Not everybody, even those closest to her, really knew where things stood as far as the divorce. So on this Sunday, she decides at her attorney's request to come downtown to meet with him. And we know she got here, she parked her car, and 
within seconds of getting out of her car, was attacked before she ever made it inside, before that meeting ever happened. So she's attacked right as she's going to meet with with her attorney. Somebody ends up finding her and calling 911. Do we know who that person is and what, if anything, they witnessed of the attack? Yeah, we've actually talked to Kenny Shepard. He's the one that placed the 911 call. Um, and we talked to him at the time back in 2013. And he was working upstairs in, in a different office building, but in this same stretch uh, that Elisa was walking in 75 Erie View Place. That was where he worked. He was upstairs. He heard someone scream and he ran downstairs. So he didn't see what happened, but he got to her and realized how badly she was bleeding. Um, he said, you know, even in the call, he had never seen so much blood. And so he called 911 right away. And you can hear him in that 911 call trying to keep a Aliza with him, trying to keep her attention and trying to give as much detail as he can to the 911 operator to get somebody there and get somebody there quick because he could tell she was fading very fast. It seems like she's almost trying to communicate with him in the call, um, but he doesn't. he's not able to get any information from her. And then, uh, unfortunately, after Aliza's taken to the hospital, she's pronounced dead and one of the puzzling things for investigators, I have to imagine at least, is that there didn't appear to be an obvious motive for what happened. The crime, it was really violent. She was stabbed 11 times in total, if I'm not mistaken. And so to me, you know, that seems to indicate that this wasn't a mugging or, or a random act of, of violence. In the days and weeks after this happened, what were investigators able to figure out about who this attacker might be, if anything? Yeah, so to give you a little context, let me tell you about this area of downtown Cleveland. It's about three blocks from WKYC Studios, our station here where 3 News is located. So it's a fairly well-trafficked part of downtown Cleveland on a weekday. But on a Sunday afternoon, it's pretty quiet. So had this happened at a different time, you would imagine somebody might have seen something. But because it was a Sunday... People immediately started just asking questions about security cameras. This is outside of the Galleria, which was a mall and retail space. And, and then, of course, the office buildings, like where Gregory Moore's office was on Erie View Plaza. And so it's a fairly busy area. And there were cameras all over that you could see just from the naked eye if you stood where Elisa Sherman was found. So the questions started right away. Do women need to be concerned? Is is this just some wacko who is attacking women and obviously in such an impassioned way? Before police investigators had much information, it was one of the things they, they honed in on was the fact that this was a stabbing. This wasn't a shooting. And as you said, she was stabbed 11 times. So a crime of passion, it would seem, in some ways. And they wanted to be clear to the city very quickly that they believed she was targeted, that somebody knew where she was going to be that day and was waiting for her, that this wasn't a random attack, that they didn't think anybody else out there was at risk. With a, uh, a knife, very personal, you know, um, nothing was taken, so we know it wasn't a robbery. She had jewelry of value on, she had her purse and her phone with her. None of these things were taken from her. When 
the ambulance and police arrived after that 911 call was made, those were all still in her possession. So it didn't seem to be a robbery or random or a mugging or something like that. And that's what really then started in this focus on, okay, maybe it's related to where she was going, to the reason she was there in the first place, or to this divorce trial. Right, because as you kind of walked us through, it doesn't seem like there were a lot of people who would have known that she was going downtown that afternoon, right? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the most surprising things about it. As far as we know, most of her family didn't know where she was going that day. And so it seems like it would be a fairly limited number of people that knew where she was going and why. So Sarah, as you already talked about, Alisa was in the middle of what sounds like a pretty bitter divorce proceeding when she was killed. Did that lead to any division or or finger pointing within, within her own family? Yes, almost instantly. That was the direction that most of our coverage took. And it was, uh, you know, in part because of the information that was out there and what police themselves were looking at. We knew quickly um, that this divorce trial was supposed to begin on Tuesday. We knew that police had been called out to the Beechwood home that Eliza and Samford shared multiple times in the past year and, and some before that. There was certainly... Um, some evidence of domestic situations going on in the home as to what extent maybe not totally clear, no no charges filed in any of those situations. But police had been there because of concerns between the family members and the children. And we also could see that the family um, was sort of taking sides very quickly on this and, and perhaps had been before Elisa's death. Um, some of those four children were siding with their mother, the others with their father. And that sort of complicated many accounts of of where things really stood and how the family was doing. I remember I covered her funeral. Again, the Sherman family is Jewish, and there were more than 600 people who attended her funeral service. And I, I was there that day. It was only a few days after her death in the Jewish tradition. And all of the children spoke at the service. But it created some uncomfortable moments when Josh Sherman got up at the funeral and said, my dad had nothing to effing do with this. I don't think anybody was expecting that. Certainly the the conversations were happening. The news coverage was asking, you know, what's the deal with Sanford Sherman? Everybody was trying to talk with him or other members of their family. But for it to actually become a part of her funeral services was uh, really eye-opening. And someone else who's also been in the spotlight since this happened is the divorce attorney that Elisa was supposed to meet that day, Gregory Moore. How is he wrapped up in all this? And what has he had to say over the years about his interactions with Elisa that day. Yeah, so Gregory Moore, it sounds like, was not a great attorney. Uh, He had been past Elisa's case when another one of the colleagues in his firm was unable to continue it. And so she had been working with him. He's the one we know from both prosecutors 
And from Jennifer Sherman's account, um, who called the meeting, who had asked Elisa to come downtown on that Sunday afternoon. And yet we later learned that Gregory Moore wasn't even there. He wasn't inside his office waiting for Elisa as this all happened outside. He had texted her that he wanted to talk with her. He wanted to go over some things about the case that was about to begin. But he actually had left that office building about an hour before she was supposed to be there and hadn't returned. So there were a lot of questions as that information started to come out. What did he know? Who had he been in contact with? Who knew that he had tried to set this meeting or had he in fact lured Elisa Sherman to this place where someone was waiting for her. Yeah, it is strange, uh, of course, that he would have texted her to have her come meet at his office if he wasn't there. So one thing we learned about Gregory Moore as this unfolded, and this was really years after Elisa's death, but Cuyahoga County prosecutors alleged that Moore had been pulling all sorts of various stunts to get out of trials and cases that he wasn't prepared for. Um, He, in fact, pleaded guilty to calling in bomb threats. This was unrelated to Elisa's case, but in other cases, he called in bomb threats to the Justice Center here in Cuyahoga County just to get his trials delayed. Uh, He's, in fact, served some jail time for that. So he certainly seems to have... um, a pattern of questionable practices, especially as an attorney. Uh, he's resigned his license. That happened in 2018 now. But we don't know if he actually had any involvement with it, her death. Cuyahoga County prosecutors then said that they hoped evidence would come out to show that, you know, he simply was unprepared for her trial as well. The judge had told him there would be no continuances in the Sherman divorce trial, and he wasn't ready. So in some, there was some thought that perhaps that's why he had lied to her, that in fact it was just a coincidence. Yeah, and we, and we should say that this is still an open case, so we don't know what happened, uh, who killed Elisa. In the time since Elisa's murder, um, it's it's now been eight years. Have investigators ever publicly named any suspects or persons of interest? No. There have never been any named persons of interest or suspects in the case. They have said there have been persons of interest. They've never shared names. They have never admitted to having a suspect. The only thing we know about a potential suspect in the stabbing is from a piece of really grainy security video. And that came out a few weeks after. As I told you, as soon as this happened, people started asking questions about what video might there be surrounding this situation, that there might even be video of the attack. That didn't pan out. But Cleveland police did look at their own cameras. They requested the video from all sorts of private businesses in the area and eventually got this piece of video from a parking garage, which is a block away or so. And in it, you just see someone running. This person is basically covered head to toe. Police have surveillance footage showing a potential suspect dressed in dark clothing and a mask. I keep looking at it thinking, who could that be? They're covered from head to toe, but who is under that? 
between the quality of the video being so poor and also what seems to be you know, somewhat of a, a disguise on this person. You can't tell whether this person running is a man or a woman, whether they're black or white. You can't tell any revealing or identifying detail about this person. They have gloves on. They have a hooded jacket on. Seems like they must have something even obscuring their face jeans. And you just see them run from a from couple different angles from cameras on the the edge of this parking garage, um, you just see them running away from the scene. They also never recovered any weapon in the case. So really, that piece of video is is almost the only evidence that Cleveland police have ever publicly shared. And of course, it must be just incredibly difficult for Elisa's whole family to have had to go now eight years without answers. What efforts have they made to keep looking for answers to keep her case in the public eye over all this time? When you hear people talk about Elisa Sherman, all they have to say are good and wonderful things. We continue to be her voice and, and fight for her since she can't physically do it for herself. You can close your eyes and pray that she'll come back, or you can open your eyes and see all she's left. She was great, and I try to emulate her, and I do what I can. It's still heartbreaking every single day without my mom. And these friends and family members were so distraught over the, the violence that had ended her life and over the idea that they didn't really have any answers in this whole thing, and it didn't seem like police did either. They decided they would band together and do whatever they could to make sure the case got attention. So... Some of her closest friends, as well as Jennifer Sherman, formed what they called Justice for Eliza. And within, I think, the first two weeks or so after Eliza died, they started holding events. They started holding marches. They started working with some domestic violence survivors and in the area who were well-spoken and, and well-connected and they really took her case and made sure that no one was going to forget about Elisa Sherman. And whatever they could do, whether it was raising money for a reward, which they did, it was at one time the highest, it was at one time the largest reward in Cuyahoga County history. Of course, it's never been given, but $100,000 is still waiting there for information that would lead to an arrest. And they just organized events of all kinds around Mother's Day, around the anniversary of Elisa's death, around her birthday, around special events. They just tried to make sure that we all would remember Elisa and, and know a little bit more about the person that she was in her life as well as the way her life ended. Well, hopefully the result of all that will at some point be some answers and some closure for this family. Yeah, I've gotten to know Jennifer Sherman in this time, and I've interviewed her over the years multiple times, and you really do see in her that she believes at some point this is going to be resolved. At some point, they are going to know who was responsible and that that person will see justice. And it's sort of a resolve that that she has kept throughout the years, and I don't see it going anywhere. Even this year in the pandemic, on the anniversary, on March 24th, they got everyone together on Zoom since they couldn't meet in person. Justice for Eliza still had dozens of people getting together to share a memory of her and to light a candle. 
Sarah Shuckman, anchor with 3 News in Cleveland, Ohio. Thank you so much for sharing the story with us. Thanks, Reed. Thank you, as always, for listening to this episode of The Daily Crime. If you have any information about the death of Elisa Sherman, you can contact Crime Stoppers of Cuyahoga County at 216-252-7463. We're here with a new case every weekday. If you're still looking for more crime after that, be sure to check out our weekly podcast, True Crime Chronicles. You can find all of our other shows at vaultstudios.com. Until next time, for Vault Studios, I'm Reed Redmond. <laughs>